Welcome to the Aquas Podcast, conversations about regs, funds, and governance with your host, Daniel Lawler. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to the Aquas Podcast with me, Danny Lawler. If you're new to the Aquas Podcast, do hit the subscribe button on your preferred podcast platform provider to be kept up to date with the Equest podcast as and when new episodes drop. This episode is part of our series on ESG, environmental, social, and governance type investing, driven investing. And for this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Tara O'Reilly, who is a partner in Arca Cox, and who's going to kind of chat through with us what are the regulatory requirements and the deadlines that are coming up in relation to ESG requirements on fund management companies, be they USITS or AIFM. If you're part of the compliance team or you're in a USITS Manco or an AFM and you're responsible for updating the prospectuses and the, and the website, probably best to go and pour yourself a large drink or a large cup of something now because there's obviously the 10th of March 2021 rolling around quite quickly and that's the deadline for updating prospectuses for all of these disclosures. So quite a lot of work involved in that. So sit back, relax, enjoy as much as you can this episode, all about the, the regulatory side of the new ESG rules. Okay, over the show. Hello and welcome to Tara O'Reilly, partner uh, in Arthur Cox. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Equest podcast. Delighted to be here, Danny. Thank That's you great to have me. you. How is uh, lockdown life in a law firm? Is it different than anybody else's experience in other office-based environments? I suspect very little difference. We're, we're all at home. Um, we did have a brief interlude there where we were able to do maybe a day or two a week from the office uh, for anybody who needed it. But uh, with the recent lockdowns, um, we're, we're pretty much back at home. Um, but technology is a great thing. And we've actually found, you know, a lot of people adjusted quite quickly to this. And I think... Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's actually going to be interesting to see what happens next in terms of how that impacts on how we work going forward. Yeah, I think tech, I used to think tech was a bit of a pain in the neck because it just seemed like your work followed you around. And there was no escaping it. It didn't actually make your life any easier. But but in this scenario, it certainly, it certainly has made a huge difference. Yeah, I think it is definitely following you around. And, and that is one of the biggest challenges of working from home is where is work and where is home the two tend to blend together a little bit too much um, but in terms of having the ability to work from home we're fortunate in that respect. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things during lockdown that I've tried to uh, get into if that's the right phrase is uh, uh, I'm going to look for your tips on this Tara is opera music. I've started ah. listening to opera and I know you're a big opera fan I know you're a wonderful opera singer so what, what, would, your, for a while. what would your tip be now to a budding, a budding opera enthusiast who <laughs> Who's <laughs> keen but doesn't know doesn't know where to go? What, what, uh, what would you recommend? I would always start with the classics. Start with the what my husband, who is very much into opera, would would refer to as pop the pop classics. And um, so the the Verdi's, the Puccini's, and while yes, you can work your way up to some of the 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 um, Wagner's of the world, I'd start easy uh, and enjoy it first, and then develop a, an ear for some of the uh, more complicated music. So I'm starting with the, I'm starting with the pop classics. Okay, so this is the, uh, this is the Vanilla Ice equivalent yes. of, uh, of the <laughs> opera world. Okay, well it's a good job you mentioned your husband there because I, I'm always looking for, uh, 
opportunities to chat football and Leeds United because I know oh. uh, not only am I a big Leeds fan, but your your hobby's a big Leeds fan too. Household must he be a indeed. wonderful place. Does he go around with a smile on his face all the time? I haven't haven't seen anything like the excitement when when they were uh, elevated to the Premier League, and it's uh, it's apparently a very good reason why you need to have Sky Sports in this lockdown. Absolutely, I can only back that a hundred percent. Do you notice him kind of s- sat there staring into space with a, a kind of a, a little smile? You think, gosh, you must be thinking about my birthday present or our plans <laughs> for the weekend. And he's actually thinking about how grateful he is that Marcelo Bielsa has come into our lives. Well, and, and, and I think he's dreaming of times where he can go back to actually Leeds matches in Leeds, um, which I have to say, we, I did accompany him to once and a very interesting experience and, and once is more than enough for me. <laughs> My wife came once as well. And it was, a, it was around Christmas time. It was snowing. They were in the third tier of English <laughs> football. Uh, and it didn't have a lot to, it, well, let's say she's not been back either since. Yeah. Um, so what we really want to talk about on the podcast is ESG. Um, and I guess we know ESG is very much on the regulatory agenda, very much on the European agenda with regulatory requirements coming into effect very shortly in, in March of next year. So uh, we're doing a few podcasts around this topic. And in this one, with you, Tara, being the legal expert, wanted to get a sense for the what exactly are, are what exactly the the regime is, what the different pieces are there to make it up, and what kind of timelines we're looking at. Um, but before that, I guess when it comes to ESG, one of the things that gets kind of thrown at ESG providers is well, you you look at the companies that you've invested in, but what about you? What are you doing yourself as a as a firm and organisation to be environmental, so- social, and governance? sensitive and driven and that kind of stuff. So in, in Arthur Cox's, is this a conversation that the partners have? Is it something that's important to them? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think we've, we've done a lot on um, the ESG front. So not only in the green space where, you know, and we're fortunate enough to have, you know, a very modern building. So um, that makes some aspects of it easier, but we have sought very much to reduce our own carbon footprint um, through various energy efficiency and waste management techniques um, and we you know our building has been awarded the, the sort of highest energy efficiency marks um, but we're also conscious of social and governance responsibilities so we have a very active CSR program um, and we're also and have been for a number of years very active on the diversity and inclusion side and I've been fortunate in the last while to, to step in to lead the DNI program for the finance department. So very much a topic of conversation on an ongoing basis. I think we're seeing a... So I was going to say, when when things happen, like when you're doing interviews for, let's say, your new trainee group, or Mm. um, when, I guess, potential clients are going through procurement processes, is this something that comes up in those conversations? They ask you about, what are you doing on the ESG front and DNI? Absolutely. Um, And I think that's only increasing... And I think if, if you look at the whole DNI agenda, there was a bit of a, a concern on it that, um, you know, perhaps COVID and, and cost cutting might make DNI a bit of a nice to have. But what you're continuing to see is clients uh, very interested in, in what you're doing on a DNI program. And, um, you know, not just tick the box, but, you know, if you're pitching and if you're doing work, making sure that that sort of DNI that you proposed at the beginning is actually being shown in, in the conduct of the work itself. 
So I think it's, it's very much high on the agenda of, of many of our clients. As a, it's a great way to embed a change, if it's a cultural change or whatever is required to get ESG as part of the way that a firm works is when their clients will ask them about it and it becomes a competitive factor because something that's important. But you, well, you hopefully you believe in it as well, but even if you didn't believe in winning clients and, and so it, it helps to drive the agenda if it's, if it's important and driven by the market. Yeah, absolutely. And not, not just for law firms, because our clients will have clients and it's important to them. And, you know, ultimately all feeds in, particularly in our sector, Danny, to, you know, what we're about to talk about. If, if investors are looking at it, then it trickles down into the advisors and then they're looking at what we're doing as the, the you know, their legal advisors. So um, there is definitely a cycle of levers as well as your own kind of moral sense of wanting to do this. And I guess that that may be, we talk now about the ESG regime, but that may be how change is driven because partly by, by what's specifically in the rules, but it's the fact that it's now on the agenda and people start asking about it and it kind of becomes maybe a self-fulfilling prophecy that, that ESG does get better and businesses do become more sustainable because they can't win business otherwise or clients won't come to them otherwise or they can't get investment in because of it. Yeah, so you're definitely look, looking at sort of push-pull factors, um, things you do yourself and things that others are expecting of you, and yet they are very much pushing it all up the agenda. Well, let's talk about the, the regulatory side of things then. So this is, uh, ESG is certainly something that the European Commission has jumped on as being in sustainable finance, being an important part of the driver for the European economy, and that's manifested itself in a series of regulations that we kindly have to comply with over the next couple of years. So do you want to kind of talk us through the, the, the pieces that make up that regulatory regime? Yeah, so there's, there's, there's sort of three principal um, regulations that make up this package. And as you say, it's very much driven by an aim of, of, of furthering sustainable finance. So we have the um, taxonomy regulation, which is effectively a classification system so that there will be um, a way of identifying if things meet a certain standard um, and the idea behind that being that if you classify as such well then there's no risk of this being oversold and no risk of a greenwashing. Greenwashing, then we have, yeah. yeah. Uh, then we have the disclosures regulation which is all about transparency but I think and we can get into it in a bit more detail but very much not looking just at disclosures that we would typically understand in terms of you know, what you might put in a prospectus, but looking right internally into the organization um, and asking questions and for disclosure about how they approach sustainability themselves. And then we have the low carbon and positive impacts, a benchmark regulation, which is a bit of a mouthful, um, which sets up carbon aligned benchmarks. And all of these are going to be supplemented by changes to the USITS, AIFMD and MIFID regimes, which will sort of inbuild uh, sustainability into those uh, frameworks. Right, I guess uh, the one that flashes in the distance is the, the 10th of March deadline for the disclosures mm. regulation. Um, so what is it that, uh, I suppose MANCOs, AFIMs and USITS, they're, they're both caught by this. What is it they're gonna do between now and then? So uh, it, it, there's a variety of things that they're going to need to do. But if you were looking at it, there's probably three main pillars. And um, 
I said earlier that you, you have to look at this not just at a product level, but also at an entity level. So if we look at this at an entity level, there are some business decisions or policy decisions that entities will need to take. So the first of those is, are you going to integrate sustainability risks into your investment process? And if you are, that will drive certain requirements. And if you're not, that will drive other requirements. Um, the second sort of pillar item you'd need to look at is whether you're going to consider the adverse impacts of the investment decisions you take on certain sustainability factors. Um, and again, depending on whether you're answering yes or no to those questions, um, you'll have certain actions that you need to take. And then the third pillar really is around the products themselves. So are you in the space of what is kind of uh, generally called dark or light green products? Um, or are you outside of those uh, ESG products? Um, and then again, depending on where you fall into that categorization, um, you will have to take certain measures. So I think you really are looking at sitting down as an entity and looking at those first two questions. And then you're also sitting down to look at classifying your products and seeing what that means for you in the context of this 10 March deadline. So there's a good bit of work to do then. Like, I mean, like, you know, you can, you can see there's a paper exercise there in terms of prospectus updates and uh, website updates and, and what have you. But I guess to make it in any way meaningful, you actually need that engagement from the organization to put a bit of brain power into where they stand in all of this and whether it's something they, they really want to incorporate or whether it's, it's part of what they do, but not uh, a very, you know, not a driver for how they go about assessing investments. Yeah, and I think you'll find that that most organizations will have a group at, at their kind of entity or headquarter level that's looking at ESG globally across their sort of suite of offerings. Um, and they will have a mix, um, you know, except for maybe some very boutique offerings, they will have a mix of products that are promoting ESG and those that don't. Um, but I think, you know, when you say there's a paperwork exercise here, this exercise is going to impact on every fund. So even if you're updating your prospectus just to say, I don't comply with any of this, you have to have that done by the 10th of March. So I think that's one of the, the, the sort of biggest issues here is, you know, we, we don't have full certainty on these measures. There are level two requirements that, you know, haven't yet been finalized, some of which haven't even been published. And yet you're sort of designing programs and trying to ask, answer questions in the absence of those measures. Um, yeah. And I think we're hearing a little bit that, that, you know, not through official channels, but certainly through some interaction with industry bodies, that those level two measures won't be finalized in time and might be delayed. So you might have to do half of it now and then revisit it again in 2022. So, you know, unfortunately, a, a lot of paper uh, exercise to be done. You gotta love the European Union when it comes to making oh, financial so. services legislation, and then they're and then, and then they're pursuing the agenda of value for money and all this, <laughs> course, making you go at it twice. But anyway, um, so so like an awful lot there, even as if, you want to downplay the, the paper element of it, but be, and frighten everybody off. But if you're talking about every prospectus and every fund, that is a huge amount of work. To, yeah. to tweak just to put whether it's a substantial disclosure or not, it's still a lot of work to, to, to put that through. Um, do you have a sense of preparedness, both in terms of 
firms and in terms of the regulator and, and any kind of a fast track process they might have for it? I think there's a, um, you know, there's a real mix. Um, you've got people who are hoping that there will be sufficient clarity and they can wait and, and sort of avail of a process that's well thought out and finalized. And then you have many who just, uh, you know, have very complicated uh, product suites, you know, multiple jurisdictions to deal with, and they really are kind of plowing ahead and having to make a best efforts attempt at all of this. So um, very much a, a mix across the spectrum in terms of the approach so far. Um, I think the pieces that you have to do internally will be easier done in some aspects, but it will also depend on your product suite. So, you know, if, if we look at something like a decision as to whether to integrate sustainability risks, um, that might apply differently if you're um, an active fund or you're a passive fund because your capacity to select stocks based on sustainability will be different if you're tracking an index. In, in terms of how we manage this, there is absolutely a need for some fast track process for, from the central bank. If you're an AFE, obviously you can self-certify, you could do an addendum that will address these issues and you can wait um, until you know in the new year um, and see what additional clarity there is. But if you're a USITS, and if you're particularly if you're a USITS that's registered in you know non-EU countries, and you've got that kind of time frame to deal with, we really do need some guidance from the central bank in terms of whether there would be some element of self-certification allowed on this, some form of short addendum that could be done um, that would and, and that would allow an additional piece of time um, for for USITS funds to get that same level of certainty. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly when you are dealing with foreign registrations, it, it does add that layer of complexity and, and effort when yeah. you're, you're trying to keep all of your, all your registrations properly maintained and do something like a prospectus update. Yeah. I, I do think, you know, not having the level two is, to be honest, it's not unusual. It's not, I mean, not the first time we've ended up there and you are in a best effort situation and yeah. trying to well, I guess if you look at broadly the objectives of what the, the regime is trying to achieve and then use that as your, your guide once you await uh, the finalised level two. And I guess prospectuses do tend to get updated by hook or by crook reasonably frequently. So it's not inconceivable. You would have another update between now and 2022, uh, notwithstanding. Yeah. Um, very positive spin to put on it, Danny. I, I think uh, uh, clients are probably not feeling quite so positive about it, but but yes, and I think you know if there was some comfort given that approaching compliance on this on a best efforts basis would be recognised, particularly in the absence of level two, um, you know there 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 are um, probably some um, promoters that will look at it being a positive that you've just comply with the high level principles now and you will in fact end up with a little bit more time to look at the more detailed elements i think yeah. you know one of the difficulties that's sort of thrown into the mix is is the, the the sort of survey that was um issued recently where we were looking at the illustrative mock-ups and the question is uh, can you do best efforts without taking account of what's in those even though they're part of the level twos, but they're out there. Um, so I think there's a there's a few interpretive questions that we're we're working through at the moment in terms of how you might approach it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think ideally in a situation like this where it's a I guess it's a new regime bolted on to a, an older regime, but it's new, is maybe not to get too 
dogmatic about it day one. This is something that will likely be around for years and years and years. And in two, three, four, five years time, the way that you comply and your levels of disclosure and how you get your data and how you demonstrate that you're doing the right thing will be quite different than it is today. So, so trying to get yeah. a perfect day one is probably not as important as getting something that's meaningful and aligned with what the, what the regulations and the directors are trying to achieve. Maybe that's the best we oh, can do fine. for day one. I think that's fair. I mean, and I think you, you, you referenced the commission and, and when we see, you know, what um, the commission president was talking about in her state of the nation talk, um, you know, we are accelerating as uh, in the EU, the desire to um, reach certain targets. So if there's a belief that the financial markets can help pay for the changes that are required, this area is going to be under increasing focus, which is why I think, you know, people will often ask the question, do we think this will be delayed? I, I think this is such a hugely political um, objective for the EU that there, will be, there won't be a delay of the, the 10 March deadline, uh, even if we don't have the level twos. And I think it is something that is going to be the backdrop to any piece of legislation and any initiative that the EU is doing as it tries to meet those sustainability targets that it set for itself and has only increased last week. Um, so yes, you're right that this is going to be a continuing, continuingly developing area. Yeah, I, I agree with your assessment. I don't think there'll be a delay for 10th of March, but I, I feel I'm, I'm, I'm reaching into the ethers. I feel there'll be a statement from ESMA that'll have the line in about how uh, you know, national common authorities should take a risk-based approach to uh, enforcement and uh, apply their discretion in relation to ESG disclosures, which reading between the lines means uh, don't bother enforcing for breaches if you've got a firm who's at least attempted to comply with this at this stage. Let's get the level two, let's bed it in and be pushier about it a little bit down the track. So that kind of a risk-based statement, uh, I think might be useful here to accompany the, accompany the or to, to cope with the absence of the level two. I think um, you're right. And I think in, you know, people would take a lot of comfort from that and a lot of comfort if the central bank was to make some kind of echoing statement in relation to that but some guidance from the bank in, in terms of how they would like to approach this or how they intend to approach this, um, you know, sooner rather than later would be very useful. And, you know, I know Irish Funds has engaged in terms of trying to get some clarity around that. We are hoping there'll be something in October to give a little bit of guidance around that. And in the meantime, as you say, just working on a best efforts basis to try and comply. Um, brief, briefly, what's your assessment of the level two and the level of detail required and, and like, I feel sometimes that um, you nearly kill the kill the animal before it's born when you when, when you set the barrier to entry so high yeah, that I, I, uh, you I nearly agree. get rid of all of the good of it, or you, you you stymie it because you've you've just lost the well lost the one yourself is overstated, but you've you've been so demanding of what you require that actually you just turn people off trying yeah. to engage with the regime. I think if, if we look at what the objectives were, which were to make, you know, clear, concise information that would help investors sort of through the variety of products to decide, you know, what was, was one that was really meeting their requirements, the level of detail that's required in, in the level twos, I think is much more significant than anybody expected and, you know, has the risk of overwhelming investors. Um, you know, I think, 
uh, in particular the level of detail around the um, principal adverse impacts um, you know, is significant, way beyond what anybody expected. And when analysis has been done in terms of the capacity to data gather to even provide that information, there is you know, very few groups that will be able to do that internally. Um, there are limited providers in the industry that would be able to provide consistency across that level of information. So, you know, we're, we're risking either, you know, driving all of this product into um, organizations that can afford this piece um, and, and pushing out people who really simply can't get into that space. So, you know, potentially narrowing down the offering of these products, which is absolutely contrary to what this uh, ambition is. Yeah, yeah, I think that there's a danger of by requiring so much, you impose a cost that's so high that you kind mm. of kill it before it's even started. And actually, if you were to step back and say, well, I could achieve 80% of what I want to achieve, but do it in a way that costs 20% of what we're currently uh, looking to, to impose on firms. You could, you could achieve a lot of what you want to achieve in a way that is less onerous and makes more sense rather than going to town and then imposing substantial costs on, on everybody to give disclosure to investors that they, they may or may not want or, or may go beyond mm -hmm. what they actually want. Well, yeah, or um, actually need in terms of making this decision. And I think if if the idea here is to you know drive people toward the type of investments that will help fund the actions that we need to take to improve these climate targets, we want to make it simple for investors to go that route. And if we want them to understand that look, if I invest in this way, it's going to have adverse impacts. In one sense, a, a narrative around that would be far more comprehensible than uh, the type of table that Annex One is, is proposing. Well, let's see how it develops. It may, it may turn out better than that as it works its way through the, the legislative process. All you can do is hope, but these things, maybe it would be better if that happened at that stage rather than something like a Rips kid where you end up with something that Yes. It's quite difficult to operate and practice, and then you end up having the legislators having to go back at it a second time to try and make it maybe the way that it should have been the first time around, or, or fix what what hasn't quite worked. So let's let's hope that that's where it ends up. In the other pieces of the 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 universe of ESG, the uh, and others, the benchmarks and uh, the taxonomy, I think very exciting in there. Any deadlines? Anything for for asset managers to especially get the teeth into or stay awake at night worrying about? No, I think um, I mean I think the, the the benchmarks piece will will be relevant for products that are kind of determining themselves to be in in that dark green category. Um, I think there are certain elements of the taxonomy that obviously layer over what we have in SFDR. I think probably for you know people who are in the use it's an AFMD space, the um, the overlay of what um, will come into the their frameworks will be interesting because in addition to complying with this now. Um, you will have to adapt your organizational um, structure to comply with these new requirements. And that's not going to come in until, you know, the end of probably quarter three or quarter four of next year. So while you can try and do that as you're looking at policies around sustainability now, um, and while it's probably unlikely that much of the detail of the delegated acts will change, um, they're not effective yet. So that's a sort of another compliance deadline. And I think that's something that, um, you know, is, is probably more relevant 
uh, to, to the audience here. I think the other question in relation to that delegated act is what's it going to mean for distribution of these products? So how will sustainability be um, understood in the context of somebody who has a MIFID distributor that has to take sustainability into account? And will that drive them then if they want to be able to tick the box to only sort of go down a narrower suite of products that they're offering? So I think those questions about the impact on distribution are something that uh, people will be looking at in the context of these delegated acts as well. Yeah, I guess you mentioned distribution. One of the benefits of a European-wide regime is to hopefully have consistency of approach and, and uh, move away from different approaches and different member states. And we know the French have already uh, jumped on this and have their own particular requirements. So uh, yeah, a consistent absolutely. European approach should should benefit at least in that regard. You don't have twenty-eight or twenty-seven different approaches. Yeah, so it, you know, and it was surprising, and, and it is causing difficulty for people to have to comply with the the, the AMF's regime ahead of SFDR, because if you're launching a product now, you know you're you're too early as such to to get a, a cert that says you're compliant with SFDR, but you do have to comply with the French regime. So um, you know there there is still a bit of work to do to get that consistency across the EU if we are going to have such significant regimes issued now by other member states. Absolutely. And so as we wrap up, uh, let me ask you this question, Terry. Do you think it'll work? Do you think we look back in five or ten years' time at the changes introduced on, on the CSD front, uh, uh, ESG even, and see that we have firms and investment portfolios that are much more sensitive to this and the world is a better place? Or are we going to look back at this and it's going to be like Eltif and Uveca and Yousef, good in theory, but not really used? I, I think that this is going to be better than those, definitely. I think I remember back to the first time where somebody was doing an overview of SFDR. And um, as I listened to this in, in the training session, my question was, sorry, does that mean we can only have green products going forward? And, you know, the, the, the more you look at it, um, the more, whether it's investor demand, whether it's actually being sort of, you know, gently nudged and probably more than gently nudged to create products in this space, I think we will definitely see far more ESG products. And I think given that distribution nuance, if you were previously on the line of a little bit of ESG, but not that much, you'll be notching up in order to get yourself into a category age rather than notching down. Um, and I think, and I know you, you've got, um, you know, uh, guests who will talk more about the, the sort of efficacy from an investor return perspective. Um, and we certainly haven't got a long enough um, track record to know whether ESG investing helps. So we, but we may end up in more of a barbell situation where you know you're in a an ESG fund and you're balancing that out with something on the far end of the spectrum to get returns. So, I do think we will see this move products more into the ESG space. Yeah, I, I have a feeling that it's a little bit like the the value for money rules in the UK in that it's a way of getting ESG or value for money on the agenda for leadership teams and. Okay, maybe day one it's not perfect, but maybe in a year or two or three years' time, you find by having looked at it a few times, you actually are in a much better place than you would have been without it uh, or, uh, or were at the time. So I think it'll be a slow burn. And I do think that the firms that believe in this and that actually are 
really, really vested and invested in an ESG approach as being good for everybody, including the investors, they're going to jump on this. They're going to be all over it and, and should make hay from it. I think a lot of firms, it's could maybe take it or leave it at this stage, and they're kind of forced to think more about, well, um, <clears throat> you know, we take into account governance, actually, when we're looking at investment. So we actually are kind of in this space, even though we didn't re really realize it. So uh, they'll... By hook or by crook, <laughs> they'll be tried kicking or screaming, but it would be better, of course, if they would volunteer and, and engage in it rather than feel it to be a, another compliance exercise. And if that's what it turns out to be, then it'll fall away when nobody's looking and nobody's putting the gun to somebody's head. Yeah. So we shall see. We shall see. Thank you very much for your time, Tara. I really appreciate it. Not at all. Good to chat to you, Danny. Well, it's great to have you on the Quest podcast. That's the end of the show. Uh, do check us out in a press study for any other episodes of this podcast. Till then, catch you next time. You've been listening to the Aquas Podcast. For information about our training and advisory programs or our academy, visit aquas.ie. For more resources on regs, funds, and governance, check out our YouTube channel, Daniel Lawler, R-U-R-Q.